Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, the Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. In today's polarized political climate, how can Americans foster constructive conversations and compromise across the political spectrum to address the nation's most pressing issues? In this episode, we explore the roots of America's political divide, various strategies for overcoming partisan gridlock, and how and why to engage in difficult discussions to secure the future of democracy. Joining the conversation is Ronnie Janoff Bullman, psychologist and author of The Two Moralities, Conservatives, Liberals, and the Roots of Our Political Divide. Matthew Levandusky, political scientist and author of Our Common Bonds, Using What Americans Share to Help Bridge the Partisan Divide. And Kenji Yoshino, legal scholar and author of Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and Justice. Thomas Donnelly, Chief Content Officer at the National Constitution Center, moderates. This program was streamed live on June 13, 2023. It is made possible through the generous support of Citizen Travelers, the nonpartisan civic engagement initiative of Travelers. Here's Tom to get the conversation started. Thank you for joining us, Ronnie Jenna Bowman, Matthew Lewandowski, and Kenji Yoshino. Thanks so much for having us, Thomas. Yes, thank you. Excellent. So let's start with you, Ronnie. Uh, your book frames our challenge around America's two moralities. Can you talk a little bit about what those two moralities are and what they could teach us about the roots of our nation's political divide? Yes, I'd be happy to do so. Thank you. Uh, I would like to sort of start by just asking those here to consider the very challenging possibility uh, in light of our present poisonous politics uh, that there are moralities that underlie both liberalism and conservatism. That is that they're both morally based and reflect concern, genuine concern for the country. Um, I am not claiming, I want to say up front, I am not claiming that those who wield and weaponize those moralities are moral. I mean, certainly the big lie and its proponents are um, not a group I would call moral. Um, I, so what are the two moralities? Um, they are based in the most fundamental distinction in psychology and motivation, approach and avoidance, approaching the good, avoiding the bad. And when applied to the moral domain, uh, I identify two distinct moralities. These are natural forms of morality. One is a proscriptive morality that is based in avoidance and really focused on the should not, so things we should not do. The other is a prescriptive morality focused on the things we should do, um, and that um, approaches the good as opposed to avoiding the bad. The prescriptive morality um, really is about providing for the well-being of others. The proscriptive morality is about preventing or a harm to others, okay, um, protecting others from harm. Now, what I should say is that when we are dealing with the interpersonal domain, one-on-one -on -one relationships and so forth, liberals and conservatives don't differ. Uh, in that domain, it looks like not harming and helping is what we're talking about. And liberals and conservatives both believe in not harming and helping. And in fact, these are highly correlated in, in the interpersonal domain. I do want to also point out that these are actually quite different. It might seem on the face of things that these are the same thing. Uh, I ask you to perhaps consider the to consider toddlers. Toddlers who refrain from taking others' toys are engaging in proscriptive morality, refraining from um, uh, doing, you know, harming others. It, it, it is not the same as, well, we should not believe it's the same, as um, sharing your toys with others. Toddlers who share toys with others are engaging in prescriptive morality. These are not the same thing. And just as an aside, I should mention that developmental psychology has shown it's much harder for children to learn to share than it is to refrain from taking others' toys. Um, but in that domain, the interpersonal domain, liberals and conservatives are both um, would applaud both kinds of behaviors, both, both moralities. When we get to the collective domain, that's the domain of politics, um, where we're talking about group-based moralities, we start seeing that proscriptive and prescriptive morality diverge. One is favored by liberals, one is favored by, by conservatives. Now, most generally, liberalism is rooted in a prescriptive morality, social justice, that is focused on providing for the well-being of the nation's constituents. 
conservatism is rooted in a proscriptive morality, which is um, really intended to protect or uh, protect the nation from harm, from internal external threats. Uh, more generally, to ma maintaining stability is part of this proscriptive morality. Proscriptive morality is very restrictive. Prescriptive morality is very enabling. If you um, take these two forms of morality, you can start seeing uh, mapping differences, for example, in the psychological attributes of liberals and conservatives in the laboratory, where liberals are very high on openness, psychological openness, comfort with novelty, and conservatives are very high on threat sensitivity. Okay, uh, Look at political messaging. They also break down along these two dimensions where fear sells very well on the right. Hope and optimism sell very well on the left. And finally, the last thing I just want to say is that the policies that are promoted or favored on each side follow directly from these two moralities, I think. Um, I shouldn't overstate the case clearly. Uh, I, recognize, uh, I recognize that. But um, if you think about what liberals will in, focus on the economic domain when they are interested in the um, intervention of government, that is, spending on safety nets, um, entitlements, expenditures for health, education, welfare. These are all about providing for the, for the public good. The, the economic domain is a domain where we're talking about distribution of resources. And no surprise, that's where liberals focus their um, hopes for government intervention and regulation. Um, now, the right, in looking at those expenditures, really asks for, cries out for a limited government, um, not very happy about those expenditures, typically. Um, of course, uh, there, to, to argue for limited government when the right obviously is also engaging or interested in government intervention, just in a very different domain, typically a social domain, the exception being defense spending, typically, again, where, where it shows the, the desire for protecting the, the nation. But um, conservatives focus on the social domain where they believe that traditional family roles, socially defined roles, um, strict norm adherence are essential bulwarks, I suppose I should say, against the personal gratification that they believe will um, engender the instability of the nation. Um, so let me stop there. Um, Hopefully that makes some sense. <laughs> no, that's a terrific framing for the discussion. So thank you so much for laying out at least you know, some of the framework that you lay out in your book about the two moralities. Looking at you, uh, Matthew Levandusky, you approach the political environment from the perspective of a political scientist. And one of your main areas of focus throughout the book is on the challenge of affective polarization. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, why it's increased so much in recent years, what are its consequences? And maybe also take a beat. One of the insights I love in your book is maybe take a, a beat on the importance of people's misperceptions to your account of aversive polarization. Sure. So thanks, everyone, for, for joining us. Uh, so affective polarization is uh, this idea that even if people agree on the issues, um, they might still uh, disagree with uh, one another. Right. So if you look at... Um, a lot of work that people have done in surveys, people certainly have moved apart on the issues, right? But ordinary voters haven't diverged as much as elite politicians have. But what makes ordinary voters quite remarkable is the sense in which ordinary Democrats and Republicans now report, as opposed to even 15 or 20 years ago, that they increasingly really dislike people from the other side. They don't want to talk uh, with them even about apolitical topics like sports or, or pop culture, right? They don't want to be their roommates. They don't want to work with them, right? So there's the affective polarization is sort of this term that political scientists use for sort of partisan animosity between Democrats um, and Republicans, right? And so this has a lot of, of consequences for you know, that kind of political sphere, Right. Uh, so in terms of not just the candidates people support, but their support for lots of things about uh, norms and support for compromise, uh, but also then in the social sphere. Right. So the, the kind of relations we have with uh, with one another. Right. So that's partly why political scientists have been very you know, concerned about it, because it affects uh, lots of different uh, parts of our lives. Right. And so the work that I feature in my most recent book, Our Common Bonds, is about trying to reduce that animosity, 
So I always like to begin by saying it is not possible to eliminate that animosity, right? And there's no quick kind of fix for this. There's no like one weird trick that gets rid of this, right? This is about taking small steps that are going to change things maybe a little bit on the margin. Um, but one of the, the, the themes I press in the book is that people actually pretty dramatically misperceive the other, uh, those from the other party, right? On a lot of different dimensions, right? So their demographic attributes, how much they support compromise, right? Their aversion to political violence, right? So Democrats and Republicans tend to think um, that they take the most kind of, you know, if you ask them, they tend to take the kind of stereotypical view of the other party when in reality, right, that's a, based on a very extreme and unrepresentative um, person, right? The kind, just to use a very, you know, kind of simple example, right? The kinds of people we see ranting about politics all the time from the left and the right on Facebook or Twitter, right, aren't very representative of what most other ordinary people are like. But when you ask people to bring to mind, you know, oh, what do you think about when you think about a Democrat or Republican? They tend to bring up that sort of very um, dramatic, uh, very extreme sort of exemplar because it's very vivid and easy for them to, to think about. So part of what I try to do in the book is to use some strategies to get people to think about, you know, people who are more kind of ordinary or more representative parts of the party to give them a more representative sample of what the other party is actually like. Thank you so much for that, Matthew, giving it the perspective of the political science, this challenge of aversive polarization. And, and turning to you now, Kenji Yoshino, you're a law professor, legal scholar, you've written uh, a new book with David Glasgow called Say the Right Thing, it really addresses the challenge of engaging in civil discussions around issues of identity. I mean, maybe say a word a little bit, if you can, about where you see those issues connecting with some of these broader themes that we're seeing in Ronnie and Matthew's work. And also your book is, you know, I think refreshingly practical rather than theoretical. So maybe also play, play, place on the table you know, some of the principles that you talk about on how to engage practically in conversations about identity, um, especially with people with whom we disagree. Yeah, wonderful. So uh, it's such a pleasure to be with my colleagues here. And I am a little bit abashed because uh, my book is, as you say, not to ma meant to be a high concept book, but rather as like a screwdriver or a toolkit that we hope that people will put into use uh, immediately after uh, reading it. Uh, but the really um, background of this is, I think I should set the table by noting that I don't really come to you today as a law professor, you know, that I really come to you as a diversity and inclusion uh, specialist. I always thought of the law as setting the floor uh, for uh, kind of civil norms and civil society. And I got into diversity and inclusion work because I thought that that really was the work of culture that needed to be built above the floor because laws and meat acts and can only do so much for us. A lot of these uh, conversations or interactions across race or gender or sexual orientation or disability or so kind of fine-grained and nuanced that we think that conversations are a much better way of approaching it uh, than the law. Now, I should also note that, uh, you know, I wistfully long for the days when I thought of law as a floor above which diversity and inclusion was built, because increasingly we're seeing that law is now the ceiling that's being dropped down on uh, the enterprise of diversity and inclusion, whether that's the uh, uh, Supreme Court cases on affirmative action that we're all waiting for, or uh, the don't say gay bills, or the anti-critical race theory bills um, that are popping up around the country. So uh, this may actually return to a legal conversation either, you know, in this session or uh, later on in my career. But this particular enterprise is really um, an attempt to think about this as an intervention on uh, diversity and inclusion ground. So it came actually from a place of great uh, hope you know, one of the things that we have seen change dramatically in the way that we talk across our differences in this country is the rise of allyship. So the political writer, Matt Iglesias, who I don't think styles himself as um, being particularly interested in diversity and inclusion, wrote a really insightful um, piece looking at the polity as a whole, saying that what he sees is different uh, in this particular moment is what he calls the great awakening. And I use the word woke as he does there uh, in the original positive sense rather than in the more distorted uh, contemporary uh, pejorative sense. And what he meant by that is that the great awakening is a movement in which people are, are stepping in to be allies. So what's different about this particular moment is that non-Black people are going in numbers to Black Lives Matter 
rallies. Men are going to the Women's March on Washington. And again, in significant uh, number of straight and cisgender individuals are sticking up for the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, able-bodied individuals are stepping uh, stepping up for people who uh, have disabilities. And so across a number of domains, we actually see an uptick in the rise of allyship. And the puzzle that David, my wonderful executive director at my center and uh, co-author on this book, we're puzzling over is why, if uh, there's so much good intent out there, do people find trouble sort of closing uh, on having good conversations? Why don't we see more effective allyship out there if the will right, for uh, to be an ally is so significant as Iglesias and others have documented. And when we actually uh, talk to people about this, we heard one refrain over and over, and we saw it in the literature too, which is, I'm actually terrified, right, of saying the wrong thing, uh, hence the title of our book. Uh, but the notion was, I'm going to hurt somebody that I really care about, or in a more self-interested way, I'm terrified that I'm going to get canceled because the culture has become so punitive. Uh, that, you know, I'm going to, you know, step out of these conversations altogether, even though I would love to uh, be in there, right? Uh, in terms of um, the book, and I'm happy to unpack any of these principles, we really just try to provide seven principles that we think will be good guidelines for people in order to surmount that fear and to step into the conversation. Uh, so the seven principles really quickly are avoiding the four conversational traps, the four unproductive behaviors that we see people engage in over and over again, the second and third chapters are about building resilience and cultivating curiosity, resilience and curiosity being the cardinal virtues of uh, what we call identity conversations, conversations about uh, and across our identities. Uh, the fourth and fifth chapters are about how to disagree respectfully uh, and how to apologize authentically. So these are the two challenging landing pads for a conversation. If you and I agree, Thomas, then no further action is required. But you know, sometimes I'm going to mess up and I need to apologize. At other times, in the name of my authenticity and integrity, even if I'm here uh, to be your ally, I'm going to need to express my disagreement with uh, the position that you've just taken. So we're trying to get people to think about how to do that with minimal damage to the relationship. And the sixth and seventh principles are about how to address the affected person in these ally relationships. And then finally, how to address the source of non-inclusive behavior, the person who's done the harm. Uh, because perhaps the most innovative part of our model is that we believe that allyship involves also being an ally uh, to the source of non-inclusive behavior, uh, not just to the person who's been hurt, the affected person. And then finally, uh, I get to go last. So I get to tie in uh, this these concepts to my uh, eminent uh, predecessors in this conversation. So uh, when I think about how this might tie in with uh, Ronnie's work, uh, which I find incredibly uh, illuminating, I wonder, and this might actually be a question for you, Ronnie, if part of the reason why we see the kind of outcry against cancel culture on the right is not just about sort of substantive priors about, you know, I think, you know, diversity and inclusion is kind of uh, an overreach, right, on the part of, you know, minorities and the part of women and the part of the civil rights movement, you know, what have you. Uh, so there might be that substantive concern. I think that's often the way we think of the left-right divide and diversity and inclusion. But it might be sort of refracting it now through the two moralities lens, uh, something that uh, speaks to a proscriptive or uh, as opposed to a prescriptive, a kind of prohibitory uh, notion of like, I really resent the fact that, you know, I have to be so afraid in these conversations uh, as somebody is coming into it from the right. Uh, and so it might not just be that uh, I have substantive priors against the conversation, but actually something that uh, we hear over and over again from opponents of diversity and inclusion, which is this is a thought police. I'm being told what to say and what to think. And I really resent that. So it may be a kind of methodological objection uh, as well as a substantive one. And then with regard to uh, Matthew's, you know, wonderful work on uh, the common bond and sort of trying to advert to a higher level of generality and sort of affirm our, our kind of common humanity, right? You know, I, um, I'd also love to, to hear about the kind of good and the bad ways of doing that, right? Because, you know, one of the things that we talk about in our work is the dangers of upswitching too quickly, right? So this is the, and I'm sure, Matthew, that uh, you would uh, excoriate this, but the movement that is too fast from like Black Lives Matter to All Lives Matter, like why can't we unify around our common humanity rather than talking about, you know, race relations? And so we criticize that in our book as a form of deflection, right? That when somebody uh, gives you a concern at a certain level of generality and a diversity inclusion conversation, 
please don't sort of upswitch, right? So Mark Lilla's book, you know, which is a really thoughtful book in many ways, uh, but I think has been rightly criticized, you know, on this ground of saying, let's, you know, set aside the differences that are balkanizing us. This is a once and future liberal book and reclaim liberalism as, you know, citizens. But, you know, that doesn't actually do that much good if you're trying to have a conversation about sexual assault saying, let's advert to this higher level of generality of humans who are against sexual assault rather than actually meeting the concern, you know, where it lies, you know, uh, in all of its sort of gendered aspects, right? But in another sense, you know, my book is actually deeply in love with this notion of uh, trying to find this universal register, because we really do think of allyship as something that is uh, way, way, way beyond the zero-sum game. Uh, allyship is something that uh, we all think that we as human beings can give and receive, because as human beings, we all have uh, some cluster of advantages and some cluster of disadvantages. It's wrong to think that some of us are kind of categorically disadvantaged and others of us are categorically uh, advantaged or privileged. We're all going to have some mixture. But that to me is like a you know feature rather than a bug of this analysis because it suggests that if all allyship means is leveraging your own advantages in support of others who don't have those same advantages in a particular context, that means that we can all give allyship where we happen to have those advantages and we can receive allyship where we lack them. Excellent. Thanks so much, Kenji. You, you make my job easier, too, by placing additional questions on the table for, for Ronnie and Matthew. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll return to you, Ronnie. And one, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity to, if you'd like to respond uh, to Kenji's uh, a query along the lines of cancel culture. But we also have, a, I think, a really interesting question in the chat from a member of our audience. It says, Dr. Jana Fullman, I understand your model and find it fascinating. When it comes to group behavior, how does one's preference for prescriptive or proscriptive uh, moralities develop in a person? So sort of the origins. <laughs> Gee, uh, <laughs> the, okay, so this, this is a, uh, a large question in psychology, um, actually political science too. Where do we uh, get our political ideologies from? As, as many of you may know, there's a branch of psychologists now who believe that these ideologies of political orientations are inherited, they're biological. I'm not one of those people, but I do think um, things start perhaps um, quite young. There are interesting papers, actually research by Block and Block, for example, where they uh, explored children's behaviors and orientations um, towards others when children were very, very, very young, toddlers, uh, preschoolers, and look at the political outcomes 20 and 30 years later. Um, and you find some interesting connections and threads there where children who are more anxious and um, less open, I mean, you, these map onto the same or same political uh, psychological attributes in adulthood, um, do become more uh, proscriptive or prescriptive. Parental behaviors are quite important. Parents who actually say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, um, and um, focus on traditional parenting, like obedience and so forth. Um, proper behavior, um, put strict boundaries around children, do are more likely to have children that are proscriptively oriented than parents who tend to be what are called egalitarian parents in uh, the psychological literature. So there are some, there are some temperamental differences. There are parental differences. Um, where you go to school, you know, the, your, your peer groups um, matter, your teachers matter. I mean, the whole socialization process makes a difference. Um, where you live matters. Um, you know, the geographical sorting of people is we, we self-sort, but you also are raised in neighborhoods where you might meet people um, in rural areas. You may never see people unlike yourself, that you might only see white Christian Americans in many parts of America, um, which um, might make a difference. I think there is, it's, a, um, it's a fascinating question that is, and the answer is so multi-determined, is what I should say. Um, that um, and there is not a straight, strict path. Um, the other thing I should say is all of us. It, what's what's fascinating about this is all of us rely on both proscriptive and prescriptive morality. You know, most of us don't want to steal and cheat and lie, and we want to be good neighbors and helpful friends. And so it's not as if I mean. And what's fascinating is that in each of us is a balance of proscriptive and prescriptive morality when we're dealing with with interpersonal relationships. What's fascinating to me is that these sort or break down and diverge in the group domain. It's as if 
the balance we have often as individuals ends up being represented in a balance in society where basically half of the culture, half of our society votes in more conservative ways and half in more um, liberal ways. And folks that are interested in social evolution might argue um, that there is some advantage adaptively to a society that actually focuses on both protecting and providing. Um, that I think is a conversation perhaps for another day. Um, but I, I think it's something to, to bear in mind. Why do these diverge um, in our culture? Now, that's not necessarily the same when I've worked with some folks in China. It looks like these moralities are, even at the group level, they, they coexist within an individual. Um, so we are talking about U U.S. politics here. Um, I do want to back up, and, and I, I found Kenji's comment so interesting. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to actually bypass the the cancel culture and prescriptions at the moment. But I, I do think what's what's so fascinating in this uh, this movement towards greater um, allies is it doesn't happen in the in the political realm at all. We clearly are not greater allies in the political. Realm. If anything, we've gotten more polarized. Okay. And there's an interesting question there, why there and not in other forms of diversity. Um, so I, I, I would like to make the case that, it's, um, again, I'm a little like a little kid with a hammer and uh, going after the same nails, but um, I would like to make the case that much of that is due or attributable to the fact that these are ide ideologies are morally based. And what, one thing we do know from social psychological research is that moral convictions are very, very different from other kinds of attitudinal convictions. They arouse much stronger emotions. They are regarded as facts and absolute. There's no continuum of right or wrong. If I'm right, you're wrong. If you're right, I'm wrong, right? Um, when, when we are, um, there's greater intolerance of those with different moral orientations, moral perspectives, such that if you bring people into a laboratory and have them discuss a moral issue and they disagree, they will literally, people will literally push their chairs further apart physically. Okay. And when it comes to groups that differ on either, um, you know, and politics or um, a moral issue, um, what you find is that identity is based not solely on in-group love, which is what most social identities are based on, but they are it is equally determined by outgroup hate, and that is a very distinctive um, uh, feature of, of morality. And so we have these moral convictions, and of course, historically, if we think about this, you know, when I was young, very many rights, yes, many many years ago, you know, we had Jacob Javits, uh, Nelson Rockefeller. These were Republicans. These were moderate liberal Republicans. We had Strom Thurmond and, and, and Lester Maddox as Democrats. This 1964-65 Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act started shifting the realignment of, of, of uh, the parties and, and, and conservatism and liberalism. So I said over decades, and actually Matthew would know much more about this than I do as a political scientist, but over decades, um, we now have a situation where morality, moral orientation, and party are absolutely aligned. You know, Liberal, Republicans, conservative, Democrats, those are extinct species. They don't exist um, in our political world, or we don't see it very often. Um, and so you have these moral convictions, which are different from other kinds of convictions. Um, and you have parties that are totally aligned with these moral, distinct moral convictions, which gets us polarized and leads us to not want to be allies. I mean, we are not it's not that people are terrified, as in other domains, about not having a dialogue. It's that people don't want to. They're not motivated to talk to others different from them, typically. I mean, obviously, there are exceptions. And I should apologize up front that as a social psychologist, I'm painting with very broad brushstrokes, okay, and not lots of detail. So Ronnie's placing on the table, you know, some of our divergence by morality, by parties. And obviously, Matthew Lewandowski, with, with your new book, Our Common Bonds, you argue that even in our hyper-polarized and partisan age, Americans share do share certain common bonds that can bring down partisan animosity. I think not surprisingly, some members of our audience might be a bit skeptical of that argument, given uh, the nature of our political environment. Uh, you yourself take this on head on in the first chapter of your book, which you title is Overcoming Division a Fantasy. Can you please just introduce our audience to some of the common bonds that you have 
found in your research? And then also from them, what are some of the strategies that we can use to decrease partisan animosity? As you said up front, you're not calling for a saying that there's a silver bullet, that we're going to get rid of partisan animosity or anything like that. But what are some of the things that we can do to, to, to lessen partisan animosity? Sure. Um, so the the types of, you know, the things that we talk about, we can think about kind of three different um, buckets of, of things. So one is a set of kind of common um, identities uh, that, that people share, right? Um, and so one of the things I always like to, to remind people when we think about this, that, you know, politics in some ways is a very weird domain, right? Uh, so when you're in the political world, you maybe you're thinking as like a Democrat or Republican, but for most people, if you just ask, not political scientists, right, but if it's just like ordinary people, um, how, you know, important are different identities to you? Um, and, and you can pick from like a long list, right? Very consistently, the same sorts of things come up at the top. And so like, to people, what are your most important identities? It's their identity as a spouse, as a parent, as a partner, Right. These sorts of core things that form the for formation of our life. Right. The next set tends to be things like for people who are members of a religion. Right. Um, or different kinds of identity groups at that point that many people, you know, ascribe and attach a lot of value to. Um, but one of the things that tends to be very low on the list is, you know, oh, my identity as a Democrat, as a Republican, as an independent. Right. Um, it's a very small number of people who put those high. And to be honest, people who do they're very weird on like a lot of dimensions, right? Because politics actually isn't all that important for um, for for most people. Um, and so I think sometimes with the kinds of people who like to engage in these sorts of conversations, it's important to remember that um, we're not normal, right? Um, and that's not a normative judgment one, one way or the other, but just a reminder that for most people, right, political identities are not kind of at the, the center um, of their lives. And actually, that's probably a, a good thing, um, right? Because people have a lot of other important things to be doing um, with their lives. Um, one of the other kind of really interesting um, things uh, in the experiment that COVID killed is about sports fandom. So uh, it turns out that because sports fandom is very rooted in geography, um, there are a lot of people for every single team who are both across all sports leagues who are both Democrats and Republicans. Right. Um, and my the experiment I was actually going to run in the spring of 2020 uh, in that strange time uh, before, you know, March 2020 and afterwards happened was to bring Democrats and uh, Republicans who were Phillies fans together and have them watch some Phillies uh, games. Uh, right. And use that as like a bridge to then having a, a kind of political conversation to see if that would help um, reduce animosity. But more constructively, actually building um, on what some of the folks at the other panels have said is that I think actually the single most important thing that when I do these sorts of insights to tell people is the most valuable thing I learned writing the book was listen more than you talk, right? Because deliberation can actually be a very effective tool for, for overcoming this. Um, but... I think a lot of people think about deliberation as like, oh, I'm going to explain to them why they're wrong, right? Where they are people on the other side. But it turns out actually because we don't actually have a very good understanding of what people actually think, right? In part because of these issues around different kinds of conceptions of morality, right? And different kinds of values, right? And, and sorting and lots of other, you know, factors that uh, the most valuable thing you can do is listen, right? Because all the work we have on kind of group dynamics and group persuasion suggests that understanding has to come a long way before um, persuasion. So even if your goal is ultimately to persuade other people, you have to be genuinely willing to listen and hear where they are in a conversation, right? And understand their point of view, right? And that that in and of itself has a lot of value. That one of the things we found was we did a set uh, of uh, kind of discussions is that you know, yes, you can, uh, if you get people in a constructive setting and they talk, um, you can reduce the gaps between people between on their issue positions, which is important. But actually the bigger shift is just that people kind of better understand the other side. They sort of have a more of a sense of what they're, you know, what the other side, why they think what they think. I think that's actually in some sense the most important, like practical thing that I try to, to give to people. Excellent. Thank you so much, Matthew. And that actually follows into one of my favorite chapters uh, in your book, Kenji, which is the chapter where you talk about the principle of the importance of disagreeing uh, respectfully 
Uh, can you just talk about that? what do you mean by that? Why is it important? Why is it so hard to have these conversations around issues like uh, d- diversity and identity with people with whom we disagree? Um, and if there are any really, one, another thing I love about your book is it has so many great concrete examples. If there are any you think in the book that are especially powerful that bring out that principle, uh, I'd love for you to share it with the audience. Yes, um, thank you. So uh, it's one of my favorite chapters as well. Uh, we struggled mildly over it, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, so I, I think the most uh, important thing about that chapter, and here I'm not talking about disagreements sort of generally, but we're talking about disagreements uh, about identity uh, in particular. Uh, so it's a kind of subset of the kinds of concerns that uh, Matthew was raising. Uh, but I hope uh, it's uh, nonetheless helpful uh, to think about some sort of tips and tricks, you know, in this in this domain. And the main one that we have is to locate yourself and your conversation partner on what we call the controversy scale. So we actually think that oftentimes when people have disagreements, they miss each other because they don't understand the difference in their, you know, subject position. So, you know, if you think about a controversy scale going from least controversial to most controversial, you know, some things that might be on the less controversial side would be things like tastes. Uh, then uh, one step over might be facts. Uh, one step over might be policies, then values. Then, you know, at the uh, final, you know, uh, outermost uh, extreme, equal humanity. Uh, so the most controversial would be if one or both parties feel like their equal humanity is somehow uh, being called into question and being put on the table. So as we move along that spectrum, just to give uh, some examples to you know sharpen our intuitions about this if you and i you know are disagreeing about um say our favorite favorite flavor of ice cream our favorite sports team or you know a favorite netflix show uh, that's unlikely to be controversial and oftentimes we may be able to kind of razz each other right and get closer to each other right it's not just you know phillies fans but it's you know uh if i we were rooting for two different sports teams we might actually not come to fisticuffs we might actually become closer right by having that kind of friendly uh rivalry we move over to facts things might get a little bit hotter but if we're really talking about journalistic facts like who did what when where and why as opposed to you know debates over values by proxy under the rubric of facts like kind of alternative facts uh we're still okay if we're talking about those journalistic facts as things get hotter towards you know policies or values i think the conversations get more intense and they get most of it intense uh, of all as i mentioned when one or both parties feel like their equal humanity is called into question so what we sort of observe is that oftentimes people are just at different points on the spectrum and they don't sort of realize that they're at different points on the spectrum so one party might feel like they're making a argument uh, purely out of you know policies or values whereas the other person might feel like their equal humanity is somehow being called into question and our advice is don't try to go over to where the other person is because uh, there's a kind of hubris in thinking that you can do that at all. You know, our life experiences are sufficiently different that, you know, particularly if you're on the more kind of advantaged side, it might be difficult to imagine your way into the life of a distant other. That project is always going to be fraught and incomplete. But what we do advise you to do is to acknowledge the other person's subject position and to say, I understand that for me, this may be an issue of policies or values. But for you, uh, it may be an issue of equal humanity, and I'm going to try and respect that. You know, as we have this conversation, to the extent that I fail at that, you know, please sort of remind me, right, that, you know, I can do better. So uh, you asked for an example, you know, I have a very personal one of this, where uh, in prior to 2015, you know, I was on one position, and then after 2015, I was in a different position. And I'll explain uh, what I mean by that. Prior to 2015, which is the date that uh, the Supreme Court uh, made... uh, um, viewed you know, same-sex marriage to be a constitutional right uh, and made same-sex marriage the law of the land. Prior to that date, I would sort of tour the country in my constitutional law professor capacity, having these debates with individuals who opposed uh, viewing the Constitution to protect you know, same-sex marriage. So I would be in these debates with them, uh, including, I think, one at the National Constitution Center. Uh, but um, in green room after green room, in prep call after prep call, Uh, My uh, party's opposite, my conversation partners would say, you know, we understand, Kenji, that you're a gay man, you're in a same-sex relationship, this may be personal to you, so, you know, so far so good. But, you know, please leave all of that aside when you get up on the stage, because we want to have this as a, you know, debate as an issue of constitutional law, and we think that it's kind of special pleading to bring in your personal circumstances. And I remember thinking after I heard this, like, kind of a drumbeat, like, 
of course, like I get where you're coming from. I'm not going to go up on the stage and sort of talk about, you know, my feelings or, you know, my, you know, biography, you know, what's, what's relevant here is the uh, constitutional law arguments. But I just thought if you had just sort of done a kind of five degree tweak, right, in the way that you approach this conversation, it would have done yourself so much good and our relationship so much good. And I don't think it would have deprived you of any substantive argument. So if you had been able to come into that sort of green room and say, you know, Kenji, I understand that you have a personal stake in this. And, and then along the lines of what I was saying, uh, what I was saying before, we view this as an issue of policy, you know, but this may land on you as, you know, a very personal issue. Uh, we're going to be trying to be respectful of that. And we just want to acknowledge that we may be in different places, you know, with regard to this. That would have made all the difference in, in the world. Now, easier said than done, right? So I'm by no means sort of criticizing these individuals for failing to take that step. I'm just saying, you know, I think it is a helpful step to take where you can. And I've learned how hard it is in a post-2015 world, where now the people I'm debating on these stages are people who want exemptions from non-discrimination statutes that would uh, force them to, you know, celebrate same-sex weddings, right, in their view. So people of faith, like the Christian Baker and the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, we have a case before the Supreme Court now of a Christian web designer who's asserting a free speech claim in the Lanus versus 303 creative case. In those kinds of circumstances, there's a law of general applicability that's a civil rights statute that says you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. And these individuals are saying, I want some kind of what I call a right of first refusal, or refusal under the First Amendment, either free exercise or you know free speech uh, clause from that. So in debating those individuals, my priors on this are really clear, which is that those exemptions should not be awarded. I think it would make a Swiss cheese over civil rights laws if they were. Uh, but you know that doesn't mean that I can't recognize that the shoe is kind of on the other foot now. The law now favors me, right? And when I'm in debates with these individuals, I can argue with them uh, as a matter of policy, but it's also incredibly helpful if I can uh, hopefully completely genuinely say to them, you know, I'm going to argue this is a matter of policy, but I understand for you, this is a, you know, this strikes at your equal humanity, right? That you feel like this is about whether you can live out your faith in the public sphere. And if I can just, you know, say that, that changes the conversation. Uh, dramatically, right? Because the other person feels sort of seen and heard, right? And um, the conversation. And again, I don't feel like when we get up on that stage that I've deprived myself of any substantive argument simply because I've recognized uh, their humanity, right? In the debate. So that's uh, disagreements. There are a couple of other points and disagreements, but if I may, I'm going to just do a little tag here, you know, on curiosity because I was so intrigued by what Matthew was saying about uh, the importance of uh, listening. One of the you know great uh, events you know that uh, I my favorite events at my center was when Charlene Eiffel, the former president of the uh, LDF, came and we just had a kind of fireside chat. And I asked her you know what cases you know I, she wanted uh, decided differently by the Supreme Court right in the domain of of race. And she had such a wise you know characteristically thoughtful answer where she said you know it's less about any particular case than it is about a mindset where she said, you know, the justices are not arrogant people, where they know that they don't know something, they're very, very humble. So they'll appoint a special master if it's a social media case, and they know that they just don't know enough, you know, about this domain. They'll do their own research, they'll get their clerks to do research, they'll read the amicus briefs really carefully. And she says, what I object to is that when it comes to race, they think they kind of know it, right? Uh, just because they've lived in a multicultural, multiracial society, that they believe that they've somehow osmotically absorbed everything that they need to know about race. And she's essentially saying, I wish that they would approach this with the same kind of radical humility that they approach the kind of social media type cases where they know that they don't know something. And in our book, chapter on curiosity, we say that the most helpful kind of hack that we can think of comes not from the social sciences where we, you know, kind of as amateurs, right? So I say this uh, very, um, uh, kind of carefully with Ronnie in the room, uh, we look at a lot of social science in this domain as kind of amateur sort of armchair, you know, uh, social scientists. But the people that we found most helpful in the curiosity chapter were actually the philosophers, right? There's a, a epistemologist in particular named um, um, Chrissy Dotson, who says uh, that whenever you are in an identity conversation, put yourself in a nuclear physics seminar. And what she means by that is you know, I think of myself as a decently smart person, but, you know, I know that if I were in a nuclear physics seminar, I would listen totally differently to Matthew's point of like, even if I'd done all the reading, even if I, you know, was listening really carefully, you know, I would kick the tires and everything that I thought I understood. You know, I take really good care to listen very attentively, attentively and share very tentatively. Right. And, you know, I think that that posture of radical humility is worth its weight in gold. 
uh, in these diversity and inclusion conversations. So it's not just about disagreement. It's also about cultivating your own curiosity in these conversations. I may, as a male ally, talking about an issue of gender, think, well, I have a sister, I have a mother, I have lots of female friends, you know, I got this. But in point of fact, a much more helpful starting position would be for me to say, I know nothing. This is a nuclear physics seminar. I need to be really, really careful. And for those of you who, you know, knowing the NCC crowd, you're probably all like nuclear physicists as undergrad majors. So if that's the case, I just want you to pick some. I think Dotson's point is just pick some, you know, body of knowledge that totally intimidates you. So it might be literary theory or some other arcane body of knowledge. Uh, but if that's a baseline, we're likely to get much further precisely because, as Matthew was saying, we're much more likely to listen. Excellent. Thanks so much that, for that, Kenji. We, we placed the importance of curiosity on the table, of uh, disagreeing respectfully. And just returning to you, Ronnie, I mean, your book really does provide us with a framework for understanding why and how we disagree across important moral dimensions and important policy dimensions. I mean, how do you see that this understanding can help us, you know, address our nation's political divide, if at all? What's kind of realistic to pull from, from, from this work? Um, and how those conversations might help to bridge the the political divide and sort of what is <laughs> unbridgeable or how do we sort of think about the, the 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 practical payoff down the line, the challenges and sort of what is realistic to address and what is not realistic to address? Yeah, um, <laughs> great question. And I really don't, it, my book is not at all practical. Um, I love Kenji's book for its practical value and um uh, I I um I guess what I would like to um what I would hope for okay is perhaps how I should frame it is that in reading this um it might help lower the temperature just a little bit and Matthew actually said earlier that we have to go in these teeny small steps I think that's quite right um in that we demonize each other, and part of that, a major part of that, is we de demean each other's motives. Um, if we understand where people are coming from, and again, as Kenji's saying, and as Matthew was saying, we need to listen to find out um, where people are coming from, that um, we might be able to begin to detoxify um, our, our, our politics a bit. Now, I, I do think getting people to the table is the tough thing here. Uh, you know, it's just. Um, we know that contact, look, to get antagonists together, I mean, traditional social psych would say, provide some major challenge or problem that has to be solved together. I mean, in this day and age, it would take something mammoth, you know, sort of AI subjugating humans, an attack on the country. We wouldn't want to go there, uh, hopefully. We wouldn't want to go there. But it's also possible, um, I, I, I'm going to put maybe submit a little note of optimism, which is not like me. So let me, <laughs> I think in this day and age, it's also somewhat possible um, to make an argument that um, things could get so extreme. This is not, this is not a positive vision, but initially, but that things could get so extreme that, that um, the threat to democracy could be so great um, that we will begin to see the left and the non-MAGA right coming together to solve or reclaim the democracy, okay? I think we have seen some of this, little, little bits of this. Um, Trump lost his election. The 2022 midterms actually uh, were not a red wave. The big lie lost. Um, uh, I, I think there's a possibility that... Um, you know, the more extreme the Republican Party gets. And by the way, I should comment um, that when we think about the polarization, the extremity, um, in actuality, according to the Global Party Survey, the Democrats have remained a very mainstream politically liberal party. The Republicans have moved very much to the extreme position. This is the Global Party survey, by the way, is based on 2,000 international experts, um, presumably from both sides. Our Republican Party now is akin to the uh, nationalist parties of Poland and, and, and uh, Hungary, for example, according to these global party surveys. Um, so we are actually seeing a movement in the party. Now, again, as Matthew's book points out quite, quite beautifully, that doesn't mean the voter is more extreme, but the political elites that are running the party are actually quite extreme. 
okay, are more and more extreme. So um, if, if we, um, we know that both liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, both say they care a great deal about maintaining our democracy. Each side sees the other side, again, the misperception, as not care, as threatening our democracy. Um, to the extent that we really st start seeing the democracy being threatened, it's possible the left and the right, the non-MAGA right, can come together somewhat um, and, 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 and work together. I mean, I think that's, that I, I have some minimal optimism that that might happen over time. Um, you know, um, I do think that when it comes to morality, we are, contact is the answer. Um, again, um, Kenji's book sort of in terms of telling us how to disagree respectfully is all about how to contact how to be with one another respectfully. Um, I think the contact is superbly important, but to get people to want to have the contact, to have the dialogue, we've got to somehow convince people that this is not going to be the most unpleasant experience of your life. You're not going to get in there and hate each other. Um, um, again, going to the common bonds that Matthew talks about. And I like to think about this a bit as the Liz Cheney effect. You know, um, I probably disagree with Liz Cheney on virtually every political issue. I'm, I think most liberal people on the left probably do disagree with her on many issues. But I think many on the left would be happy to sit at a table with Liz Cheney and talk about governing and how to move forward because they actually believe that she's a person of integrity. Um, now, th th that's sort of an interest. It, it encapsulates the importance of how we view each other's morality. Um, in terms of moving forward, I'm going to I'm going to stop here though because I think Matthew and Kenji have um, much better practical plans for how to do this, and and I don't. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you, Ronnie. And yeah, let's let's move over to Matthew. And I mean, we've heard a few different times in this discussion about you know a general sense that people don't love having political discussions with people they disagree with. They try to steer clear of them. But I mean, one of the most powerful findings in your book is the overall importance of cross-party dialogue. And also when you actually get people together to discuss things, they're capable of doing it. They may even enjoy doing it. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, your research that underlies those findings, the magnitude of the findings you find as to how important cross-party dialogue can be for decreasing partisan animosity and then projecting forward, is there any way to scale up what you've learned at the experimental level up you know, to a higher level you know, whether it's local, you know, local level, state level, national level, I'm reminded of my old mentor, Bruce Ackerman's old book, Deliberation Day, his idea of us getting together before elections and reasoning together about the election across party divides to try to have a good deliberative discussion. Just curious, um, uh, you know, what, what we could pull from your book um, and, and, and cross-party dialogue uh, more broadly. Sure. So I think that that runs exactly right. That this is an important, you know, part of, of the process, right? And that um, one of my favorite papers in this area, uh, it's by uh, Dorison, Minton, and Rogers. And what they show is that they, it's basically they they ask people. They say like, oh, you know, we they tell them that oh, we're going to have this like sort of little discussion with someone you disagree with, and they say, oh my god, this is going to be terrible. I'm going to hate this. It's going to be like the worst thing ever. And they go and do it, and they're actually like, oh, that actually was fine. It was, you know, like, okay, maybe it wasn't my favorite thing ever, but it actually was way less bad than, than I thought it was, right? And I think that gets back to the fact that people tend to think about, so if I'm on the left, I tend to think like, oh, I'm going to be debating with someone who's like a, you know, died in the wool, you know, kind of, you know, MAGA, you know, Trump on 2020 sort of person. If I'm the right, I'm going to be doing with someone who's, you know, very concerned with all these sort of, you know, issues around, um, you know, social justice, right? And, and that, yes, there are, will be strains of, of both of, of those things in a conversation, but that might, that's not going to necessarily be what you're, you're going to, to encounter, right? In an actual um, sort of conversation that you would have with someone from the other side. And so that, look, this is, again, it's not going to have a huge effect on people. I think the bigger effect is in getting people to understand that like, okay, they have a legitimate basis, right? They have some moral values and moral convictions that underlie this. It's not just kind of bias and prejudice. Um, so let me just give a couple of things that I like to think about as like practical tips of how to do this. So one is that 
this doesn't have to be super high stakes. Like you can try just doing small things, um, like having small conversations with people, right? And that way, especially if they don't go well, it's kind of just a small stakes, like little thing. And, you know, it might take you a little bit of time to, to get the hang of doing it. And the other thing I say is that I think uh, listening is really important, but when you ask questions, ask questions in a way that are trying to, to maybe find some commonality rather than difference. So let me give a concrete example of that. And so, you know, I think if a Democrat meets with a Republican, right, a bad kind of question to start with would be like, you know, did Trump actually win the 2020 election, right? Because it's going to just kind of reify lots of people's, you know, partisan positions, right? But maybe a better question would be, what's something that, you know, insert political leader from your side does that, you know, has really disappointed you or, you know, you really thought that they shouldn't have done, or maybe what's something where you actually agree with, with something, you know, someone from the other side, like I'll say a Liz Cheney, um, right. Or Bernie Sanders or whomever right, that might try to open up some more interesting space for, for conversation. Right. So there's a great book, um, a political history wrote a book on listening. Right. And they said that the kind of key part about listening is listening for, ways in which you might build bridges. And to be clear, that doesn't mean that you, you know, accept that people are going to disabuse someone else's humanity or that you have to reject your own sense of values, right? That's not at all the case, right? But you maybe try to find what points there are, right? There might be some divides you can't bridge, but there are going to be some that you can be. Excellent. So thank you so much for that practical advice, uh, Matthew Levinowski, tied to our really big topic about the liberation and, and democratic norms in America. Unfortunately, we're running out of time in this superb discussion. And so we'll give the last word here uh, to you, Kenji. And I mean, maybe if you could, we, we, you've talked a lot about sort of the, the, the practicalities of your book, some of the, the how-tos, some concrete examples, just projecting out more broadly. I mean, what do you see as being some of the positive consequences for deliberation and democratic norms if more people adopted the principles that you're talking about here? And then I'll also just place on the table one question that I, I like from the chat by uh, Niels Nielsen, which said, why is it so very hard for political advocates to admit to any validity at all of an opposing view? How can we reward open-mindedness instead of an intransigence? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful um, uh, uh, question uh, and a great place to, to end, I think. And I, I think it can also draw on uh, what Ronnie and Matthew were, were both saying earlier and saying that uh, one of the best frames of thinking about you know, political discourse or uh, diversity and inclusion, you name it, is uh, the psychologist Dolly Chug talking about the 20-60-20 rule, where she says, let's take it in the diversity inclusion context, 20% of people are sort of diehard advocates of DNI. 20% are diehard opponents and 60% kind of are in the movable middle, right? Uh, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I've heard repeatedly in this conversation is that there are people who we should not really actually dignify, right, with engagement, right? So that one of the things that she points out in a really hard-headed way is be really careful before you put someone in that sort of stuck 20%. But once you put them there, leave them alone because you're not going to persuade them. You're just going to waste all our energy being your head against that table and your energies are much better directed towards that middle 60%. So if you think about that distribution, I think it makes some sense of what Matthew was saying earlier, of just saying that oftentimes we have these avatars of who our opponents are and someone who belongs at one of the two extremes rather than, you know, in the middle of the conversation. So my hope is that, you know, to your question, Thomas, is that if we can actually evolve the ways in which we converse with each other, uh, we can actually capture that in the middle 60% and sort of move it over to our side rather than to the other side with regard to uh, the values that we care about. And the thing that Chug says is even when you're talking to somebody in the stuck 20% because they've drawn you into a debate or what have you, realize that you're not persuading them to give up their commitments against DNI any more than you're, they're convincing you to give up your commitments to, or their opposition to diversity and inclusion any more than they can convince us to give up our commitment to diversity and inclusion. Uh, you're really talking to the people who are listening in from the sides who belong to that middle 60%. And then finally, you know, in response to the, the question uh, that was asked with regard to why, you know, are we so unwilling to, to admit mistakes? You know, I think a large part of it is that if you view the other side as being completely comprised of that stuck 20 percent and your side is being comprised of that 20 percent, of course, you're not going to you know, admit to error because it's a pitched battle. Right. You have to decide whether to smite or to empathize. And if the two groups are just those two polar extremes, then all you can do is to smite. 
But the hope is once you make the descriptive claim that most of the people are in the middle, which I heard Ronnie and uh, Matthew both to be saying, and that there's a huge appeal uh, to that middle, uh, maybe that, that can actually soften the conversational norms with regard to how we approach each other, make us more willing to you know, make mistakes, make us more willing to say I was wrong, make us more willing to uh, be open to, other, to perspectives other than the ones that uh, we are most comfortable with. And I think therein lies, you know, uh, again, I don't want to be overly Pollyannish about this, but therein lies, I think, the hope for um, the future of democratic dialogue. Excellent. I think that's a great way to end this discussion. So Ronnie, Jenna Fullman, Matthew Lewandowski, Kenji Yoshino, town hall friends, thank you so much. See you again soon. Thank you, Thomas. And thank, thank you, you, Thomas. Thank you. <laughs> This episode was produced by John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's wonderful AV team. Research was provided by Colin Thibault, Rosemary Lee, and Lana Ulrich. Check out our full lineup of exciting programs and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well, or watch the videos they're available in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash media library. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. <laughs>